0: Another Scots Whahe podcast. Uh, I am joined once again by writer and journalist Peter Ross. Hello, Peter. Hello there.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Oh, it's always a pleasure, and it really is a pleasure because this is the first podcast I've done face to face for some months. Yeah. Many of them have been over Zoom, so it's really nice to be actually, you know, kind of in the same room with the person that I'm interviewing. Um, and then we're going to be talking about your latest book, which is A Tomb with a View. Mm-hmm. Great title.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So <laughs>
0: tell us a little bit about the book and how it came about.
1: well it's, it's, it's funny, just the title first of all, I was very keen to have something that sounded like the book wasn't going to be depressing or frightening. Mm-hmm. It's really important to me to have quite a friendly title, something quite warm and you know slightly funny. and I love puns anyway, but um, yeah, that was, that was the, the importance of the title for me. Um, in terms of how the, the book came about, um, where I live in Glasgow, on the south side of Glasgow, there's a, there's a cemetery behind my house, Kithcart uh, Cemetery, mm-hmm. and uh, I walk in there an awful lot. But when we first moved to uh, the house that we're in just now, I kind of started to explore that cemetery and within there one day I saw um, a headstone, which was a little pink granite headstone you know, half hidden by a hedge and a little bit of ivy growing across it, mm-hmm. and it just said on it, "Mark Sheridan, comedian."
0: Yeah,
1: and it was very unusual. I had never seen comedian written on a headstone before. And there was almost no other information. I think it said he died in 1918. So I thought, I wonder who he was. Right. And so I, I kind of looked into that, and it turned out that Mark Sheridan was a, a music hall star from the northeast of England, big star in his day, and amazingly. He is the reason that we know the song. I do like to be beside the seaside.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: so he was. The, it was the popularity of his original recording of that song that was the reason that it's become a kind of folk song. Yeah. And it's also the his vocal that's sampled on the Queen song Seven Seas of Rye. When you hear someone singing, I do like to be beside the seaside. I B- do. Be, yes, B- yes yeah. I know that well. Yeah. And so I was curious about who he was. And how he came to be buried on the hill behind my house, given that he's a musical star from England. And there's photographs of him, you know, mm-hmm. this this kind of quite engaging figure with like a gigantic bowler hat, you know, and bell bottoms. Um, and what happened was, I went to the Mitchell Library, and researched it, and what happened was. Uh, Sheridan had been on tour in Glasgow right. in, in uh, early 1918 with a, a, a musical review that he'd written called Gay Paris. Right. It was on the, the Coliseum in Eglinton Street, but I don't think it's there anymore. Okay. Uh, and it turned out, very sadly, that he had taken his own life. He'd, he'd shot himself in Kelvin Grove Park um, before that night's performance and uh, it was quite widely reported. I read about it in the, in the Herald, right. like, you know. Um, and I just thought, that is an incredible story. An incredible story. Yeah. And it's, it's based on seeing a single gravestone in a cemetery. And I thought, there must be hundreds of stories like that um, in cemeteries and graveyards across the UK. And that was really the genesis of the book. Yeah. Uh, it's changed a bit from being a purely historical book a lot from being purely historical, in fact. But that was the little acorn.
0: I mean, books full of stories like that, as you say, and I don't you want know, to spoil too many of them, but maybe we can touch on a few mm. uh, later on. But just to go back to that one, because as you say, more questions come up, like, okay, he died in Glasgow, but why was he buried in Glasgow? Yeah. You know, you would think he would be going home or something like that. Um, and in the, in the book you kind of suggest that some people thought it maybe wasn't suicide it
1: was yeah well there had been sort of um, some speculation i guess as there always maybe is in these things that he might have been murdered yeah. and i think that that kind of came out of the fact that um there was a subsequent court case um, because i think i believe his family wanted to claim life insurance right. and the life insurance would be invalidated had he taken his own life so they were keen to prove that he hadn't intended to take his own life. Uh, in fact, I think they were suggesting it was an accident. That he was rehearsing for the act with a gun, and it went off, and you know, sadly, he was killed. But I think it was found that he he was um, he had taken his own life. Yeah. Right.
0: Um. So the, the, right back to start that uh, cemetery that uh, up in Cardiff. I just discovered it walking my kind of lockdown walks, and you know, found. Cause going wider and wider from our own base. And it's a it's a very interesting one. Um yeah. bigger than I thought it would be as well. Um you wrote the book I think you'd finished it before lockdown started, is that right?
1: Yeah I finished the book um I think on the first of March.
0: Right, so just before everything Yeah. Um has you have you been walking the cemeteries nearby more? have they changed the way that you yeah. thought about them
1: yeah well it's it's been very interesting i I finished the book on the first of March, and I think the twelfth of March was the day when the prime minister made a very somber announcement about about coronavirus yeah he said at that point that. You know, I think he said, I must level with the British people, many more people will die before their time an incredible thing yeah. for uh, a, a kind of leader of a country to say. um and then lockdown happened around that time and I think what what happened in terms of cemeteries was they became busier, certainly Kith Cemetery, the one behind my house became busier i decided to go in there pretty much every day as my daily exercise. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the reasons for that is I was very fond I'm very fond of it. Um, and it's very nearby. But also the parks, the public parks became extremely busy. Yeah. So like Lynn Park would be the park that I would normally walk in and it was very busy. So it was very difficult to socially distance, you yes. know. So I think people, not just myself but other people kinda of found that a cemetery was quite a good place to go for a walk, um, because it wasn't as busy as it wasn't as busy as the parks. It's, no. it's not for everybody, is it? A no. cemetery, um, and so I found people in there, you know, walking, cycling, sketching, you know, just kind of taking the air, looking at the stones. So it, it really was as if what like, the cemetery had kind of found its moment in a way. It was yeah. a v- great Victorian cemetery that somehow had this new purpose in the twenty first century.
0: Um. I want to say there's so many stories uh, in the book, and there are a couple I particularly would like to uh, touch on. One is
1: the tiger
0: mauling story. Oh yeah. So it tells that this is the, the, the first person to be mauled by a tiger in...?
1: Apparently, yeah. Uh, this is a, a, a woman, a young woman um, called uh, Hannah Twinoy, and she was um, killed, she was a barmaid um, in an inn in Malmesbury down in uh, the south of England, and uh, essentially what apparently happened was she was, uh, the Travelling Circus came to town, and they set up camp in the backyard of this local inn, the White Lion it was called, and I'm not sure that circuses then were quite as they they are now, I imagine it was quite a kind of scraggly affair and um, the animals in their cages were all just put in this backyard. So she apparently, and a lot of this has become a sort of folk tale. She apparently would go out to kind of fetch things from the yard and as she passed the tiger's cage she would uh, sort of run a stick along the bars and she was told not to do this because it annoyed the tiger. But she continued to do it and one day the tiger... Reached the end of its tether, I guess quite literally, and it broke through the the cage and um, and it killed her. It leapt upon her and it killed her. And it's interesting that it's become a kind of cautionary tale for children or a, an almost amusing little story. But it must have been absolutely horrific. Horrific. Yeah, when you, think, you know, think about it. Yes.
0: Yeah. when I was reading a book. I was on uh, holiday with uh, family, and it was one of those things. Where I Probably quite an annoying thing to do, but you would tell them what you just yeah, read, and you yeah. wouldn't believe this, and you would. But then you kind of wouldn't believe that, and you think actually the realities of that are fairly grim.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, she was she was killed, and she was buried in the grounds of uh, Malmesbury Abbey, which is a great um, ancient abbey um, mm-hmm. very nearby, um, and um, she's got quite a substantial stone. Uh, which mentions the death it right? mentions the, I mean, I'll read what it says yeah, in the stone if you'd that, yeah, like that would be great. But, um, that's one of the mysteries around it is who paid for the stone because presumably she didn't have much money mm-hmm. um, someone must have forked out quite a lot of cash for that and the, the stone it says um, in bloom of life she snatched from hence she had not room to make defence for tiger fierce took life away and here she lies in a bed of clay until the resurrection day <laughs> and it's just become one of these strange sites of england the 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 stone of the first person um, in england to mm-hmm. be killed by a tiger
0: but one of the other things that comes through off the back of that is the kind of strange poetry of gravestones themselves that um, uh, i said to you before one of my favorite places in glasgow is the necropolis and i know some of the the writings on some of the stones there fairly well, and you've got actors who, you know, uh, have had the stones dedicated to them, and, and quite long. Mm-hmm. So, what are their favourites of yours that you found as you went around, kind of favourite headstones or...? or um... Oh, in terms of inscriptions? Yeah, yeah,
1: I'm not really sure in terms of inscriptions. I mean, I, I am very attracted to that whole language of headstones. and It's certainly true to say that um, as a child uh, one of the ways i learned to read was by reading headstones right so so those words like unto and remembrance and phrases like suffer little children and stuff like that where phrases that i didn't know and didn't quite understand i would sort of sound them out and expand my vocabulary that way i think it was uh, Beatles lyrics yeah. uh, the Brunes comic strip and, <laughs> and, and and headstones were the kind of three ways that i learned to read, although I probably should give my parents and teachers some credit as well. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I, I find headstones very interesting and attractive things, especially, I think, when they're a bit run down. I think that's part of the aesthetic yeah. of graveyards that, that appeals to taphophiles, people that are are, are lovers of, of graveyards. Um,
0: what a terrific term, that is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and a, a statue of an angel is okay... But a statue of an angel with a hand missing and a bit of ivy wreathing up her is is more attractive, I think. It's something to do with that kind of classic British taste for ruins, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I think I think that's the case for me.
0: I think there's something a bit stark as well about a brand new gravestone. It's a little bit perhaps too close to home. Whereas you know, as you say, these ones which have got the ivy going on them and, and clearly you know mm-hmm. those chipped off or whatever it is.
1: Mm-hmm. I think I think there's an idea too that. That gravestones have got their, they they, they they should cover a certain time. You know, they should. Someone said to me, and a stonemason that I interviewed for the book said that a, a, he thinks that a headstone should last with your grief. Um, yeah. So that's why he's not really in favour of very hard wearing stones like really highly polished marble or, or certain granites that essentially last and look new forever yeah. he preferred ones that are, are softer and would crumble and the, the name the letters would eventually go so that you know the headstone should last for the time of the person who's buried there being remembered um, and and kind of lamented. By the people that I actually knew them. So I think just like we have a lifespan, a, a headstone should have a death span, so yeah, to speak. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and there is a, a, something which I hadn't thought about till reading the book was the kind of um, problem facing cemeteries is that a lot of them are either full up or potentially will be full up soon. And in fact, I was thinking about, you know, the funerals I've been to, in, over my life and the last one where someone was buried I think would have been my grandmother about 20 years ago since then um, yeah, it's been nearly all cremations I think
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think three quarters of the British population are uh, cremated now mm-hmm. but nevertheless a quarter are buried yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and cemeteries especially those in the in the cities mm-hmm. are, are, are running out of space it's a big problem um, I think Highgate Cemetery which is the one I focus on in the book yeah. a great the most famous cemetery in Britain, probably the great kind of Victorian cemetery in London, it faces enormous problems with uh, with lack of burial space, and they're talking about uh, having to reuse graves essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's it's definitely a big issue. Is Highgate is that where Marx? Yes, is? Marx is the most famous person buried in Highgate. I mean. He For anyone who hasn't seen Marx's grave, or his second grave, in fact, because he was previously, when he, when Marx first died, he wasn't particularly uh, uh, celebrated, yeah. he's, not, he's not become the kind of icon, it wasn't the icon that he's become, so he was buried in a very kind of modest grave, and then when he became this kind of towering figure who had inspired the Soviet Union, yeah. he was dug up. <laughs> and, and and reburied in a in a better sighted grave and given this gigantic, um, memorial, which is uh, his head, the great leonine head of Marx, um, on a on a plinth. I think it's actually bombproof. Actually, it was it was made to it was made to be resistant to attack because they knew that it was going to be they knew it was going to be a target. And Marx is is the great draw for Highgate Cemetery. Um, and a great money spinner for them too, because he's buried um, in the part of the cemetery which is open for the public to be yeah. and, and walk around in freely. You can buy cookie cutters. You can buy Marx cookie cutters. Yeah, <laughs> in, in, in profile I have one, um, <laughs> even though I sort of disapprove of them. Yeah, I, I kind
0: of agree with your kind of disapproval of that. Huh? I, don't,
1: I don't think it's quite in the spirit of communism. <laughs> and frankly, I don't think he would have liked it. No.
0: <laughs> but
1: so. but I mean, you know, it's it's, it's a grave where. Um, Chinese tourists, busloads of Chinese tourists apparently turn up and get off the bus and go to see Marx's grave Mm -hmm. and then just get back on the bus and go to wherever else they're going in London. They seem not to be interested in the many other famous graves in Highgate Cemetery, so it's incredible really. Because I didn't know
0: about London's Magnificent Seven, which is a kind of seven major cemeteries in London,
1: is that right? to give you the sort of backstory, the reason that we have the the kind of great Victorian cemeteries that everyone knows and visualises when they think of a, a cemetery is because uh, previous to that, um, people were buried generally in churchyards. They were buried yeah, in, the, yeah. in the little yard attached to their local church. But by uh, the Victorian era, um, these were becoming very very overcrowded and insanitary. But essentially, there was no room left, and Bodies were being kind of dug up before they were ready to be dug up, and other bodies put in it, it was a real mess and it 's horrible um, and, and it was it was thought to cause um disease yeah, sure and so they passed a law saying that people were no longer allowed to be buried in these churchyards and they had to be buried um outside of the city which outside the city at that time yeah, was now in, within london and so they, there was a series of um, great Gardens of Death, as they were known, these Victorian cemeteries were built um, in a kind of ring around London. Some of them actually predate the law, like Kensal Green, um, which was the first of them, uh, predates the law. But the others were kind of modelled on on that. And actually, the the, the designer of these and um, the, the guy that came up with the idea of this sort of thing was a Scot, a guy called. Uh, John Claudius Loudon who was from Campus Lang oh that's wonderful well oh, there you go <laughs> and he's, he's, he's buried in Kensal Green Cemetery um, but yeah there's, there's seven of them and they kind of circle London and Kensal Green was the first of them and in some ways the greatest of them I suppose yeah. and Highgate is the most famous of them but there are others
0: um, and so let's talk a little bit about some of the other cities and what you learnt from them from their cemeteries. You go to Edinburgh and Greyfriars. Yeah. They're everywhere. I think most people will know Greyfriars Bobby but I didn't know the connection with Harry Potter. And
1: yeah, that I mean I was, I was in um, Greyfriars uh, Kirkyard again quite recently um, and the, the Harry Potter connection is apparently that uh, J.K. Rowling wrote a uh, part of, uh, started writing the Harry Potter books in the Elephant House Cafe, mm-hmm. with the back windows of which look out over Gravestones Cemetery. Of course, they do. That's right. Yeah, and um, apparently she would. The story goes, okay, mm-hmm. that she would walk in there, and she has apparently taken some of the names for the char- for the characters from, a uh, gravestones, um, in. Uh, Graveyards mm-hmm. Now There's a long tradition of that. I mean, Charles Dickens is alleged to have taken the name for Ebenezer Scrooge from a gravestone in Edinburgh oh, as well. Right. But yeah, so um, there's a there's a, a person buried in Graveyards Kirkyard called Thomas Riddle, which is the the real name of Lord Voldemort. Mm-hmm. So the result of this is that this man who died an awful long time ago, um, his grave is visited by a stream of tourists. Yeah. They want to go to Voldemort's grave, so they go to the they make the pilgrimage to the Elephant House. They have their cup of tea, and then they they come to the grave Fires and visit Voldemort's grave, and it's become so popular that I actually noticed when I was there last that there's, there's crash barriers around it. There's some kind of it's almost like you know they're trying to uh, you know control the numbers of people that, that go and see it. So it's really incredible that it's become this this kind of um, pilgrimage site for sort of. Uh, Harry Potter tourism.
0: Yeah, they probably say, "I wonder why that dog." There's a statue of that yeah. dog, and overlook it completely. I love the dog, though. I love the dog. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, perhaps the most poignant chapter, I think, is is on Belfast. Right. Uh, for me, anyway, because um, obviously that city has a, a, a kind of murderous history that's fairly recent, if we can put it that way. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you have found when you went to Belfast?
1: Yeah, well, um, when I came to start work on the Belfast chapter, it was my intention to visit the two great cemeteries of Belfast, uh, Milltown and City Cemetery, and and Milltown Cemetery is essentially the the Catholic uh, cemetery in Belfast, and City is the Protestant Cemetery, Mm -hmm. essentially. That's historically um, what they have been. And um, I decided that I would visit Belfast on Easter weekend because the uh, at that time uh, the Republican uh, parties uh, have parades from... it's all, all happens in West... This is all in West Belfast. Both City and Milltown are both in West Belfast. And they the, the, the parade from places on the Falls Road along to Milltown... Uh, cemetery, and it's a great pageant, really. Um, but there's people wearing like the costumes of Easter Rising and carrying replica machine guns, and you know you can buy Bobby Sands, uh, you know T-shirts and, and memorabilia at the sides of the road. And they go to what's called the Repub- well, they go to various sites within mm-hmm. Milltown, but the largest of the parades um, goes, which is essentially the kind of Sinn Fein mm-hmm. parade goes to the, uh, the main Republican plot in Milltown Cemetery, which is where Bobby Sands and various other um, IRA uh, volunteers, as they call them, mm-hmm. um, are, are buried. And these are people that died you know, on what they call active service. So sure. these are people that died either, they, they might have been killed by British forces or they might have died through um, the hunger strikes mm-hmm. and, and so forth. So it's a very interesting, um, it's, it's, it's strange because f- for a lot of people, you would, they would regard these people as, as terrorists, mm-hmm. that's the word that most people, I think, would use for them, um, and the, you know, people that should not be celebrated, that should be condemned, but really what I saw uh, was veneration and, and genuine grief it was clear that um, what was being marked on that day was a wound that still hurt um, and also a cause that was being celebrated um, so I was, very, I was very keen to go there on Easter weekend and, and see that mm-hmm. um, and I arranged, to, I arranged with the various groups that I was going to be there and present to observe it and just before I went To that, uh, Lyra McKee was killed um, in Derry. And so, what had perhaps begun to seem like history, the history of violence, it was very clear, was still very much alive and and, and real and dangerous. And uh, so, I went along to the to the Easter parades and spoke to various people about um, some of the issues around that. Um, but I also, a few days later, returned to Belfast and um, attended her funeral mm-hmm. um, and tried to write about all of this with, I don't know what you would put it, not even-handedness exactly, but a, a, some sort of understanding and, and, and compassion mm-hmm. and just try to uh, really understand I think would be the best word yeah. how all sides feel about this very complicated and dark stuff
0: there's a, a line, I can't remember who said it but no one can tell you who to grieve or how to grieve or something along those lines yeah. and I think that's true you know, grief is a very genuine and raw emotion Yeah. and you can't just say well
1: don't yes i think that's true that's 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 some of the stuff that i wanted to explore for sure
0: yeah um so let's look at a look at glasgow itself um if someone was asking you for the guide to um a, what to see in a glasgow cemetery could you know because kind of, part of the what's very interesting is and we'll talk a little bit about it in a second the other stuff that goes on in cemeteries but I was thinking, you know, a tour of cemeteries could be something that you could (laughs) (laughs) set up. Because I didn't know, I think I did know about the Gordles Vampire, but there's a white statue in that southern cemetery that I didn't know about. There was all these, part of the joy for me of the book was going, I'd like to go and see that, or I'd like to go and see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Glasgow certainly there's the various necropolises or necropoli, or whatever the Latin plural is of that. Um, There's the necropolis um, in the town centre, I guess, up up, in the Merchant City with its great statue of John Knox right in the centre of it. And I think that's probably the most well-known of Glasgow cemeteries. It's it's got the best view of the cathedral, I would say, from the the necropolis. You need to go into the necropolis to see the cathedral properly. Absolutely right, yeah. And I think it's also where Duncan Thaw emerges from some portal in Lanark as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a kind of literary history to it as well. It's certainly the most you know, visually stimulating and kind of gothic uh, looking cemetery in Glasgow. And I remember when I first moved to the city in the early 1990s, I used to live in the east end of the city and I'd walk home from university and past the cathedral and past the metropolis. Mm-hmm. It was always part of like the magic of Glasgow, those autumn evenings with the kind of John Knox statue and silhouette kind of glowering down at you. Yeah. There's a kind of magic in that, you know.
0: And the tenant Lager factory just underneath.
1: It. Exactly, yeah, 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 Death and alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. Big, big themes in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we used to. Um, the, there's also the the southern necropolis, as you said. Yeah. Um, which. Uh, apparently there was a, there was like a kind of legend in the nineteen fifties that this was the home of the Gorbles vampire as you as you mentioned, which was this creature which supposedly had iron teeth and used to drink the blood of various boys. And there was a there was a, a kind of posse of kids who used to go in there with sharpened sticks and try and hunt for the Gorbles vampire. And also there's the there's the statue of the, the the white lady in there. A very, very white marble statue um that a uh, it's, it's apparently to a couple of women that were killed in a tram accident, I think, right. and it, uh, allegedly it, it turns and looks at you, you know. So this it's just one of these urban legends. That, it's a great place for urban legends, to start in the southern necropolis.
0: Yeah, and cemeteries in general, I think, well, you can't get away from the over the feel of the actors, the cult or horror or kind of something ghostly. It's kind of mm-hmm. inevitable, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so, was that something that's interested you in going to these places or just something that well, hangs around them
1: if you like? Me? I mean, certainly uh, as a boy, one of the things that attracted me about cemeteries and why I enjoyed kind of playing in the Old Town Cemetery in Stirling was this association with creepiness. Mm. So I was a great reader of, you know, the Fontana ghost story collections yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. Mont- you know, universal monster movies and, and, and all that kind of thing. And so cemeteries were 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 of a piece uh, with that for me, but I think I think my interest in them now is is probably not that I don't really associate them with um, with ghouls and, and nasties of various kinds. Although I I had I did decide to touch on it in the book by making uh, pilgrimages to the the graves of ghost story writers. Yeah. So it was a way of acknowledging that um that Association of creepiness, but also sort of focusing it on, on real people.
0: Yeah, and there are various different tours that you go with, you know, and, mm. and for all sorts of reasons. Um, there's the Queerly Departed <laughs> tour about that. If you could talk about that because it was very interesting. Yeah,
1: so that was, I went to that uh, the night before Pride um, in London, so there's you know thousands and thousands of people out in the streets for for. for, for for Pride, um, and the night before that, in Brompton Cemetery, which is next to the Chelsea Ground, okay. um, they had a, a tour uh, called "Queerly Departed." Um, it's organised by a, 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 a kind of group called Cemetery Club, who do a lot of this kind of thing very, very well. And essentially, it was a tour of people that were thought to be. Gay, lesbian, bisexual—you mm-hmm. know—who might not have used those words for They—they they wouldn't have been. They were very likely not open about it, um, because it was much harder to be yeah. in those days, um, and they probably wouldn't have used those exact words about themselves. But they were thought to be, um, in retrospect, you know, possibly gay, lesbian, and so forth. And I, I spoke to the the person that that was organising that, and I said, "Is this about outing people retrospectively?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "No, it's more about." Um, giving them their their voice in a way yeah. that they couldn't have when they were alive, and allowing them to be properly understood in the round. I think some of the people that they celebrate were not that closeted about it. To be honest, there was a yeah. guy. There was a guy called. there's an actor called Ernest Thesiger, right. um, who is the guy at the start of Bride of Frankenstein and okay. in the kind of prologue who was apparently very very kind of camp in life and um, and also on screen so yeah. I, you know he was one of the people on the tour and, and yeah just I think I think, I think think cemetery tours like that that sort of you know take a sort of different point of view are, are really interesting
0: and You said that uh, a lot of people perhaps in lockdown have been going around that maybe hadn't previously but you had always found that cemeteries were an interesting place to kind of go and I've, I've Find that as well. I to find them, there's just some odd comfort I think in about mm-hmm. wandering a a, a cemetery, but um, it's got a reputation as a place where outsiders gather. Or you know, is that a fair way of putting it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. Um, I mean, it was. I'm, I'm an ex-goth. Mm-hmm. as much as you can be an ex-goth, yeah. I think you are a goth. And sometimes you can be for a long, for a while you can be um, sort of explicitly a goth, and then at some a certain point you internalise it. Yes. Um, so I think I, I think I'm really at the internalised stage of it. Um, but you know, goth, goths were always very drawn to, yeah. to cemeteries as, as as venues for cider drinking and other such such activities. But also, I think the aesthetics of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there is a certain outsider culture associated with cemeteries for sure yeah and I, I've always thought of myself as a bit, a bit of a, a, an oddball a bit of a weirdo and yeah I think, I think I'm attracted to those sort of kindred spirits
0: uh, it's, a, it's a place I think where you can go you can walk you can reflect yeah, and unlike maybe my more, more normal park you're not yeah. really going to get people sunbathing or you know hopefully not playing you know, music or throwing Frisbee or something like that. It does have that you can kind of escape, I think, to these places. And yeah. often I find if I'm feeling in that kind of mood where I want to be, for want a better word, alone, then, you know, these are the kind of perfect places to, well, to I mean but then you find lots of people alone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well it's that it's that, is that lyric, isn't it? We'll go where we're happy and yeah. I'll meet you at the cemetery gates. You yeah. know, that's, that's the kind of classic assertion of that that outsiderdom. But I think it's definitely true that during the, 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 the lockdown there was a touch of that around it. You, know, you might think that it would be a strange place for people to want to go at a time when death was so much in the air. Yeah. But I think, yeah. um, you know how uh, there's an idea that people watch horror movies because they want to be kind of scared. They want to feel fear in a safe way. Yes. I think that cemeteries are, are similar to that, but for, but for uh, grief and fear of death. I think there are places where even, not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously probably, you can kind of go and expose yourself to um, you know, particles of darkness and, and that way not you know, sicken with the whole thing. You, know, you can kind of begin to confront and process the idea that you, know, you are going to die and everyone you love is going to die one day. Um, and that's okay, yeah. that happens, that's what, part of being human. Yeah. Cemeteries are a place for gently moving toward that realisation, I think.
0: Um, and another thing which fascinated me was the kind of economics, again, hadn't thought about it, economics of JBRs, mm-hmm. the kind of cost of the upkeep for some yeah. of them, and increasingly when you spoke about Highgate, if you want to get a plot, you've got to kind of give you know, it, it, it I was used to think of cemeteries of kind of very democratic places because you know there's one thing that unites everyone that's in there. But actually, reading the book, there's still a hierarchy going on, and there's still the best plots are yeah. being bought.
1: Yeah. Someone told me that um, the best plots are the ones closest to the paths. Um, in a way, that's because when people planned the cemeteries the idea was that you could only have a pot close to the path if you're prepared to build something quite showy on it. Right. So that for the people that are walking around or promenading within the cemetery, their experience of being in there was they would see these kind of great monuments and memorials really close to the paths and that'd be the first thing they saw. Um but also there's an idea that um you're not truly dead until the last until until no one says your name anymore. Right. So as people kind of pass along the paths they might see a name and say it and that way you remain alive in that way. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very, very expensive. I mean, Highgate is the most expensive um, cemetery in the UK, uh, partly because of uh, its um, lack of space, so its demand and supply economics, and also because of the cachet of its name. You know, you can be buried in the same um, place as you know, Karl Marx and all these kind of greats. And in fact, there's around Marx, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of blast radius around Karl Marx of other lefties and communists that have wanted ah, to be buried really? close to Marx Yeah, um, but yeah there is, a, there, is a, there is a kind of economics of it and, and the, the other side of that, the other side of the expense is that cemeteries do cost an awful lot to keep up yeah. and so that's incredibly problematic because a lot of them are owned by councils mm-hmm. and councils do not have much money and they're about to have less of it I' would suspect yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so how do you maintain these great Victorian cemeteries in any fitting manner you know um, they need a lot of money spent on them just to keep the stones upright mm. and to, um, so it's I think you might see more and more places trying to buy them out as community groups and put them to to other other uses as happens. In Bristol, Arnos Vale Cemetery in Bristol is sort of for me the uh, classic example of a cemetery in the twenty first century. is finding a new kind of life. I mean, you can still be buried there, and you can still be buried there. You can't be cremated. I don't think you can be buried there, but also you can go to the cinema there, um, or you can you know have a nice cup of tea and a and a a muffin there, you know, or you can go to the theatre, or. Incredibly, but amazingly, you can be married there.
0: Yeah, because that's uh, something near the end of the book is a, a couple getting married, and you see confetti in the graveyard. It seems like an odd image, but yeah.
1: I mean, I went to I went to four uh, four funerals and a wedding in the course in the course of writing in, in the course of writing this book, and and I wanted to end it really mm-hmm. on a wedding because, as I said earlier, I, I feel like the book is not a bleak or frightening book; it's a celebration not all I meant. So I wanted to end it um, on on a wedding. And so I went to um, the wedding of a couple in Arnos Vale um, Cemetery in Bristol um, on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And uh, their wedding uh, was arranged by a woman called Buffy Jones, which is just fantastic, I think. Uh, You know, that's nominative determinism (laughs) right there, isn't it? Uh, And uh, yeah, I think there's something there's not anything inappropriate about getting married in the graveyard it's absolutely the circle of life isn't it, it is. you know they are those that couple are starting out on their journey in a place where many other husbands and wives are buried together mm-hmm. you know so confetti in the graveyard makes total sense to me biodegradable confetti I might I thought, <laughs> absolutely
0: yeah Um, There was a phrase which I I think it might have been the guy called John Crowe that came up with it and it was about beauty and brokenness Mm -hmm. um, which I just thought was gorgeous and really kind of fits what you said earlier about the gravestones perhaps with with either hand snipped off or the the ivy over crawling it. he seemed
1: like a very interesting character. This was someone. Um, yeah. John Crow wasn't his real name. I don't think. John Constable is his real name, and uh, John Crow is almost his sort of shamanic, poetic um, alter ego. And yeah. uh, he's a very, very interesting man. He's the, the sort of presiding genius behind uh, the Crossbones Cemetery in in London, mm-hmm. which is in Southwark. and it's. Uh, until you know twenty years ago or whatever, it was a, it was a patch of waste ground. But historically, it had been a place where, um, in the medieval period, it had mm-hmm. been a, apparently been a place where uh, sex workers were buried. There was a a group of uh, women who worked in the brothels or stews, as they were known, in, in Southwark, um, which was which is on the south bank of the Thames, right. and therefore it was sort of out with the jurisdiction of the City on them it was a kind of Las Vegas anything goes kind of place so this is where you would go and see Macbeth or Pony. you know, you'd go and see the latest hot plays and you could also get into all kinds of trouble in the taverns and so on but the sex workers of the medieval period in Southwark were licensed by the Bishop of Winchester Um, so I think he took a the church took a cut of their earnings (laughs) Uh, but Oh. Would not be was not were not willing to bury them or their children in consecrated ground because they were sinful, mm. as they saw it. Yeah, and so that's who were the first people to be buried in that place. Later, it was the, it was the poor of that part of London. It was very 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 poor part of Victorian London, and uh, paupers would be buried in that. And there none of them with gravestones. This is the place that's never had gravestones. It's always been the poor ground. Um, And then it became waste ground for an awful long time, and eventually um, it became rediscovered, really, by this man, this writer, John Constable, who really brought it back to prominence. It's it's called the Crossbones Graveyard. It always was, and he's made it the the kind of centre of um, a a kind of ritual where outsiders. Um, of all stripes are, are kind of celebrated, and people can go there to remember their own dead. Say, you know, you lost someone to suicide or something like that. Sure. That might be a place where you could go and remember them. Um, and now, in fact, uh, Southwark Cathedral have a annual service um, of remembrance on the Feast of Mary Magdalene, uh, where they go and. Make they essentially apologise for their treatment of those medieval sex workers and, and kind of remember them, uh, you know, remember them and kind of honour them now. So it was very very moving to see that.
0: Mm, a f- fascinating chapter in the book. Um, I could talk about going and on. <laughs> I, I don't want to give away too much because I want people to go out and read this for themselves. But kind of final question: Did. Doing the book, did it kind of make you reflect on death, and I mean, he's a huge question, and even on living in a in a different way. I mean, did it, did you come away from it?
1: Well, I think I I think it's fair to say that what really changed for me was when I when I started writing this book, a book about death. I knew that it was really a book about life. Yeah, it was going to celebrate people. It was going to be about how graveyards live and what they mean to the people that mourn people there or just visit them or volunteer to keep them looking nice or work in them. So it was gonna be a a book about death, which was really a book about life, but what I came to realize as I worked on it, and really, because I'm so stupid, not until I'd almost finished it, was that it's really a book about love. Love is absolutely the theme of this book and I think it's really at the heart of cemeteries. It's about um, it's, it's about the love that people feel for those uh, that they have lost. It's about the love that uh, funeral directors like the Islamic funeral director that I write about in the book feel for their community that they are serving. It's absolutely about love and the importance of that to, to human life. Well, I
0: can't think of a better place to leave it, so Peter, thank you so much for talking
1: to us today, Thanks,
0: and uh, I'll be back soon with someone completely different, mm. cheers. Yeah.